You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today on the Useless Information Retrocast, you'll hear stories about the time that a mystery man arrived in Norfolk, Virginia, speaking a language that no one could understand. And then you'll hear about a police investigation to the report of a murder, and that led to the discovery of a very unusual corpse. Or how about a woman who slipped on a bar of soap and skidded right through her bathroom window to the ground below? I am Steve Silverman, and in a moment, one of my former students, that's Madison Newton, will be joining me to discuss all these stories, today's retro sponsor, the question of the day, and so much more. All that is coming up next on today's Useless Information Retrocast. Useless Information. So Madison, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and I should mention that you were a student of mine uh, many years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, was it sophomore year that I had? No, junior year. That's when I yeah, was. Yeah, yep. for, yeah. Uh, so I, I think I met you, uh, I actually met you before. You were in earth science class. Yeah. I wasn't your teacher, but you were taking the class in my room. Mm-hmm. And uh, I used to just talk with you, and uh, and then, then I'd have to stop so you could actually listen to the real teacher. Yep. <laughs> and, and then a couple of years later, I had you as a student. But but now you're a graduate from college. Yep. Congratulations on that, by Thank the way. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, it's very lo- exciting. <laughs> uh, I'm way past that. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, so the podcast, uh, I kind of uh, let you know beforehand how it works. And, I think, and you've listened before to the podcast. Yep. So uh, we're just going to start with a few stories that I've researched and written, and then uh, we'll do a question of the day, which I have not informed you what it is yet. No, you have not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really going to stump you on that. So I guess we'll just dive into the first story, and I'll take that one, okay? All right, sounds good. Okay, here we go. During the latter part of 1924, a man was found wandering around Cape Charles, Virginia, and he was clearly lost. So someone picked him up and took him to Norfolk, where he was turned over to immigration authorities. The problem was that he spoke a language that no one understood, so immigration officials were unable to determine where he came from or how he had entered the United States. Their solution was to place him in jail for two months on a charge of vagrancy. Then, upon his release, they placed him in the hands of the Union Mission, which operated a nearby homeless shelter. Over the next few days, it was reported that hundreds of foreign-born people attempted to converse with this mystery man, but none were successful. Then, someone came up with a great suggestion. On January 7th of 1925, they had the man speak on radio station WTAR. Now keep in mind the radio was still relatively new. 
Uh, in fact, WTAR, it had just been founded on September 21st of 1923. That's just 16 months prior, and not everyone had a radio. Those that didn't own one, well, they went to the radio station to listen to the man speak. And one of those curious people was Frederick Falden. But when he arrived, he was too late. You see, the man had already finished speaking. So Falden proceeded to follow the man back to the mission. And when Falden began to speak, the old man just smiled and began to talk back. That's because Falden knew exactly what he was saying. The two men were conversing in Finnish. And here's what Falden learned about the Wanderer. His name was Aksakula, and he came from a town of that same exact name, which is on the northern coast of Finland. And he said that he had no first name. Aksakula was a naturalist and a mineralogist, and he had penned books on those subjects in Finnish. And several months prior to his arrest, the sale of his books took him on a business trip to Leningrad, which of course is now St. Petersburg. Once he got there, he found that the city was in turmoil and there was absolutely no demand for his books. Disheartened, he turned his focus to the ships that he saw anchored in the harbor. Apparently, he had never seen ships before. And Aksakula was fascinated by the amazing tales that the sailors told of their adventures in far-off lands. So he impulsively decided to hop aboard the Russian steamer Rija, which was scheduled to sail to Yokohama, Japan, by way of Canada and the United States. Unfortunately, Aksakula didn't realize what he was getting himself into. He had no knowledge of the sea or sailing, and he was of no use to the seamen on board. So they began to ridicule him, and they provided him with only leftovers from their meals. This was not a good situation for him. Upon reaching the United States, he went ashore with some other sailors, but he soon got lost. In fact, he never found his way back to the ship, and they simply left without him. So Aksakula wandered for quite a few days until that kind stranger took him to Norfolk. He said that he was 55 years old, had a wife in the northern Russian city of Boston, he had two sons in Rome and a third in Rhineland, Germany. When he made that decision to hop aboard the steamer, he didn't realize how long of a time he'd be gone. As a result, no one in his family had any idea where he was. Well, upon being identified, immigration officials decided to allow Aksakula to remain at the Union mission, and that was until arrangements could be made to deport him. So I like that story. Um, the first thing that popped in my head is just how large uh, of a distance it is to cross the Chesapeake Bay. I mean, today there's uh, the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. You, have you ever been on it? Yeah, I have, um, visiting my grandparents in North Carolina. Yeah, um, and it's incredibly long. I, I just looked it up quickly. It's 17.6 miles long, or 28.3 kilometers. When I, I haven't been on it since I'm a kid, and I think back then it was just a single, uh, you know, w- you know, kind of like one lane or one bridge tunnel going back and forth. I, I think since then they have added in a, a, a second set of bridges. I think they haven't put new tunnels. It's just bridges uh, to allow more traffic onto it. So um, where are your grandparents originally from? Yeah, they were originally from Long Island. Um, mm-hmm. They actually, uh, we would kind of joke around while we're driving there, and mom's like, hey, uh, that's the Amityville Horror House, just throwing that out there yeah. while we were on our way to their house. And I'm, 
Yeah, so, a little spooky. <laughs> yeah, but but their house wasn't haunted. No, no, no. At, le- at least not that you know of. No, not to my not to my knowledge. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I haven't seen that movie. Oh gosh, probably since I'm in high school. It's it's an old movie at this point. Yeah, I think they've re- remade it a couple times. Yeah, <laughs> uh, whenever you have something that's successful, they do that. <laughs> um, the other thing about this story that that stood out to me, which I don't really think they do today, although they have ways around it, is they charge them with vagrancy. Do you know what vagrancy is? I'd never heard of that before. Yeah, because it's not really a charge they uh, they use very much today. But basically, he was charged with being homeless and not having a job. He just If you just wander from town to town to town without a job, they can put you in jail for vagrancy. Um, but eventually, uh, there were constitutional uh, challenges about that. You know, basically, you can't just charge someone with some vague law. And of course, they haven't necessarily committed a crime. And you're giving them, uh, you know, a punishment that's far beyond anything they've done. So the constant, you know, there's been some challenges on that. But you know, towns and cities and so on have found ways around this. You charge, you know, you can charge someone with uh, being intoxicated and you know things like that. So they do find ways around it. Be vagrancy, you don't hear about too much. Anyway, uh, so we'll move on to the next one. You're going to read that one. Sure. Early on Sunday, March 13, 1927, a man breathlessly ran into a Hartford, Connecticut police garage. He said that he had witnessed a gang of 8 to 10 men holding someone down under a grate in front of the Central Baptist Church on Main Street. Officers Edwin D. Ford and John D. McSweegan, along with Assistant County Detective Gerald R. Risley and the witness himself, all raced off to the scene of the crime. While driving there, the man told the policemen, I heard them say, give it to him. Kill him. Don't let his head get from under the grate. Upon arrival, police did find several blood spots, but were unable to locate the victim. Two intoxicated men were questioned, but they both claimed to have been in the area for a short time. They had no knowledge of any crime having taken place. Other than the blood spots, the police were unable to find the victim or any additional evidence as to what had happened. They were just about to leave when a man came up to them and said that he had been across the street and saw the gang before they dispersed. Did you see any foul play? The detective asked. The man replied, why, I saw them kill him. You did? Where's the body? Right there. The man then pointed to a spot a bit further down the street. And there it was, the dead body that they had been looking for. What the officers saw was the limp body of an enormous rat. Yeah, I just thought that was a really funny, cute story. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I stumbled across that one night. I, what I do is I have a, I, I started a spreadsheet of all these uh, little stories. Mm-hmm. And I, if it's really good, I put an asterisk next to it. And if it's really good, I put three asterisks next to it. Was this one that had three? Um, I think so. Nice. Um, <laughs> and I also mark if they're short or long. And this one happened to be long and, uh, I, I figured, you know, because if it's too short, it's just too hard to A, research, or B, put into your own words. Right. So uh, it, it just reminded me that, you know, sometimes evidence can be really overwhelming and convincing, and you can probably go before a jury and convince people that someone has committed a crime, but clearly, uh, you know, they were innocent of it. Right. No, it kind of reminds me of, like, the game of, like, telephone like you have all this like hearsay and like by the time it gets to you and then you realize what it was about or maybe what they originally were thinking. I'm trying to remember there's a commercial, you know, decades ago where like someone told two people and they told two people and they told two people and so on and so on. And by the time you get to the end, you know, it's, it's it's, nothing like what they first said. Yeah. uh, Of course we live near the Norman Rockwell museum. Oh yeah. I've been there a couple of times. 
And they have one of his most famous paintings, which is uh, Gossip is Nature's Telephone. And it shows a woman talking to another woman, and then she tells somebody else and so on. And then at the very end, they show the uh, husband yelling at the first woman, you know. Um, so I just think it's really good. Have you ever seen that one? Yeah, I have. Um, we we took a trip to the Norman Rockwell Museum when I was in fourth grade, and uh, I got bought a bunch of postcards, and that was like my favorite one. I could look at that all day. <laughs> yeah, um, I have to say, I don't remember fourth grade at my age. <laughs> um, I was down in Florida this past weekend uh, visiting uh, my aunt and uncle and some cousins. Uh, in fact, I met a cousin uh, from uh, Arkansas who I haven't seen in 45 years, I think, something like that. Wow. Last time I saw her, I was 13 and she was three. And then, of course, through divorce, uh, you know, uh, her, her mother moved away with her. And I I found her on Ancestry a couple of years ago. And I, I have met her through Zoom, you know, through, uh, you know, online video. But this is the first time I physically saw her. Anyway, the two of us are sitting in the airport uh, waiting for our planes. And, uh, you know, we got into a conversation. And I just happened to mention that I don't remember any of my uh, teachers or anything from when I was younger because – uh, my parents moved out of New York City between second and third grade, and anything before that is just like non-existent in my mind. But I don't even remember who my fourth grade teacher is. It's just it's kind of crazy. I don't even think when I got to college I remembered. But as time goes on, I just forget more and more and more. Okay, so um, I'm actually working on a story right now. It's one of many that I'm putting together, but it's about this trial in Arkansas, um, and uh, these people are on trial for murder of somebody. And it turns out the guy's alive. And uh, and uh, there were witnesses saying they saw these people murder this guy, and he was alive. Um, wow. Th- th- there's more to the story than that. There's actually quite a uh, twist to it. But uh, that, one's, that one's coming sometime in the future. I, I do try to avoid doing true crime simply because there's so many true crime podcasts. So uh, I try to find more obscure stories, and I'll throw a crime one in every once in a while. But typically I try to avoid that. Yeah, no, I gotcha. (laughs) Okay, and I'll do the next one, and I really like this story. Beginning on Sunday, May 12th of 1957, Mrs. Amrikoski was in a panic, and that's because her beloved parakeet Joey had escaped from her home at 514 Gilmore Street in Ottawa, Canada. So Anne asked all of her neighbors if they had seen her bird, but of course none had. And she searched the area, but there was simply no sign of Joey. You know, she probably looked in all the trees and on top of the buildings, wherever, but there was no sign of him. Today, one would turn to social platforms like Facebook or Nextdoor to let everyone know they had lost their pet. But these options were not available back in 1957. Her best option was to place a lost pet ad in the city newspaper, which just happened to be the Ottawa Journal. She called the paper and said, quote, I want to insert an ad. I've lost a blue budgie. And then provided Joey's description and his serial number, which implies to me that he had a leg band. Then, not long after the call ended, her phone rang. The voice on the other end of the line was someone from the newspaper who said, quote, Would you come at once to the office? And as soon as she got there, Anne was taken to the circulation department. And there was Joey happily nibbling away on some bird seed. They had flipped over a wire paper basket, and that created a rudimentary cage to hold him in. Well, no one knows what Joey did with his time during his nearly two days of being on the lam, but he must have tired of whatever he was up to, and he simply decided to fly through an open window in the paper circulation department. 
The women who worked there purchased some bird seed, they gave him fresh water, and they took good care of Joey. But I'm betting he probably was very happy to go back home with Mrs. Rakoski. As the paper proudly pointed out, Anne, quote, received the fastest answer on record to an ad that wasn't even inserted. I have to say, I just love this story. I mean, what were the chances that she called the newspaper to place an ad for her lost bird and it had flown through their window? It's just, you know, just kind of, I mean, you know, there are coincidences in life. And uh, the one that popped into my head happened maybe my first or second year of teaching. And that I was, I was going to a science teacher's conference at a hotel called the Neville in Ellenville, New York. And this is about two hours from the school where, you know, the school you went to where I taught, which is Chatham. And uh, my parents just happened to live there. So I went with the uh, biology teacher and the two of us stayed at my parents' house so we could save on, uh, you know, hotel expenses and so on. And my brother lives down there. So my brother goes, let's go to dinner. And we drive about a half hour. We were planning to go to a Denny's. And then at the last minute, my brother goes, ah, let's go to the ground round. That's on the other side of the city. Uh, and this is a town, a city called Middletown. And uh, there's a store there called Playtogs. It's long gone, but it's called Playtogs. And there was a ground round there. And the parking lot was gigantic. And as we're pulling in, my brother's talking about his friend who was another teacher named Susan. And we pull in the parking spot, and there's hardly any cars in this big, gigantic lot. We look into the next car, and who's sitting next to us but Susan. And this is in the days before cell phones or anything like that. And she was going to the ground round to have dinner. So we all just had dinner together. So, I mean, what are the chances? But life's like that, you know? Yeah, it's kind of amazing. Um just stuff can happen kind of out of the blue and it just happens to work out. <laughs> yeah, uh, it is It is kind of crazy. Okay, so let's move on. Okay, Mandy, so you've listened to the podcast. You know I do a question of the day in every episode. So now you're on the spot. You ready? Yep, here we go. Okay, so uh, this is actually a simple question and if when you find out the answer, you'll probably realize how to be the answer, okay? Can you name the nation's largest single-site employer? That means... More people work at this one site than any other place in the United States. Because, I mean, you know, companies like Walmart and Amazon certainly employ a lot of people, but they're not at one single site. There's one company that has more people working at one place than any uh, other place in the United States. I see your head is kind of shaking up and down, so don't say anything. Uh, We'll come back to it at the end of the podcast, okay? All right, sounds good. Sibbing, do you know that radio is booming? Well, I, I know business is pretty good around here. You know it. Radio in the past 10 years has achieved the biggest period of growth since its invention. Ah, yes. Dear old radio, it's the greatest. And of course, you don't have any eye strain. No. no. Radio's just black and white. You don't have to worry about buying a color set with radio. No. Therefore, radio is no problem. It serves you and serves you well. 24 hours a day. You bet every important event is covered by radio. You even get the beeps from the satellites. Mm-hmm. Radio is your constant companion. Take it to the beach. Take it to the sea. Take it to camp, to the mountains. Sure, let your radio enjoy a vacation as you enjoy <laughs> radio. And you folks riding along there in your cars, what would motoring be without radio? Oh, very dreary. Traffic would be unbearable without soothing music from the car radio. Do you realize that the figures show that radio ownership is up 98% from 1949? I'm not surprised. Not surprised at all. It's wonderful to be with such a robust, progressive medium, don't you think? We don't stand still in radio. Onward. 
Carry on. Press right. On. Sales of portables have quadrupled in the last decade. Oh, that's the handy item, the tiny transistor. Oh, that's the big plus for radio. You can have it at home and you can take it with you. Oh, I keep one in my watch pocket all the time. <laughs> well, fellas, let's just not stand here. Let's show the folks what radio does. Like, for instance? Well, for instance, here's a sample of music from radio. Spelled R-A-D-I-O. Like this, my dear, since can't remember when it's, it's been, been a long, long time. That commercial promoting advertising on radio is from the August 25th, 1961 broadcast of the Bing Crosby and Rosemary Clooney show. Uh, what was going on here is that radio was suffering a big decline in audience at this time due to TV, and this was an attempt to convince listeners to continue listening to radio. The show ran on the CBS radio network Monday through Friday from 11.40 a.m. through noon. The show premiered on February 29, 1960 and ended its run on September 28, 1962. As for the songs and the dialogue, that was all pre-recorded, typically done weeks in advance. And of course, you heard three people in this uh, commercial. I think a lot of people out there would recognize Bing Crosby, who was one of the most popular entertainers of his time. He was successful in film, recorded music, and, of course, on radio, as you just heard. His recording of Irving Berlin's White Christmas is the best-selling single of all time, with over 50 million copies sold, and in total, Crosby sold more than 100 million records. This was his 15th and final radio series, and most people had given up on radio by this time, but Crosby stubbornly held on for as long as he could. And of course, the female voice you heard was Rosemary Clooney, who's best remembered today as actor George Clooney's aunt. She had a number of hit songs herself. The most famous was Come On In My House, which some of you may know. The announcer was Ken Carpenter, and he was Bing Crosby's announcer for 27 years. Crosby famously once called Carpenter, quote, the man with the golden voice. So, Maddie, I have to ask, have you ever heard of Bing Crosby? Yes, I have. Um, and I do love that song, White Christmas. <laughs> yeah, I mean, everybody's heard that. Yeah. He died when I was probably, you know, my mid-teens or so, or my early teens. I only knew him, you know, kind of on TV a little bit on, of course, White Christmas. But over time, I've seen some movies and heard some other songs. I wouldn't say I'd necessarily choose him as my favorite artist of all time, but uh, his voice is very distinct. And, of course, he was incre incredibly famous in his day, so... Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, all of those, like, older singers, like, Burl Ives and all of that just really gets me in the mood for Christmas, so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, my favorite is uh, Nat King Cole, uh, you know, chest, uh, it's called a Christmas song, but uh, most people know it as chestnuts roasting on an open fire. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and Nat King Cole as a whole, personally, I think he could sing the phone book, but uh, you know, one of my favorite artists of all time, but uh, that, that that's another thing for me to share with you someday, so. Yep. <laughs> okay, let's move on. Alrighty. This is probably a good place to break to hear from our sponsors, but when we return, I'll have some more true stories for you, the answer to the question of the day, and we'll talk more with Madison. Uh, so hang around for a bit, and I'll see you on the flip side. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. 
On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. At the time, I only felt a punch. I think everything went wrong. His drug of choice was heroin. Binging and purging over and over and over. Evaluate you, and if you're okay to go, they're going to let you go. This is Justin, and I do the Peripheral Podcast. I have a true crime background, but when telling the stories of true crime, sometimes you have to gloss over topics like mental illness, drug addiction, sexual assault. And I feel like we do that in life too. So this podcast is my attempt to bring all of these topics that are on the peripheral into the mainstream. So please join me wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. So before we go any further, Madison, I thought we'd uh, talk a little bit about you. So you recently graduated from college, and why don't you tell everybody where you went to college? Yeah, I went to Stony Brook University on Long Island. And uh, I do know you were raised in kind of the boonies, I would say. Yeah, you know, a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. Uh, country outside, a, a little town outside of Chatham, New York. Uh, I won't say specifically, so nobody goes and haunts, you know, comes after you. But <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I doubt anyone would. But um, just nice people listen to the pod, listen to my podcast. Anyway, uh, what did you study? I studied environmental humanities, and I had a minor in filmmaking. So, once you somebody about the environmental, what that involves? Yeah, so uh, that that was a really cool aspect of Stony Brook. It was kind of a unique major that I got into, and. Usually I describe it as you're exploring human understanding of the natural world. So you're looking at a lot of literature, activism, history. You're going over a lot of different topics in like climate change. And um, Mm -hmm. yeah, it was super interesting, super fun. Is that what you went for originally or you just went there and you found that? Yeah, so when I I applied to like a ton of schools because I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. Originally, I thought, oh, environmental engineering at Clarkson, but then I took calculus senior year of high mm-hmm. school, and I'm like, I don't think I can be an engineer. So then I started looking at different routes, and Stony Brook had what felt like the perfect major. Yeah, you, you just it popped into my head. Uh, I was an engineering major originally when I went to college. Oh, really? And I didn't want to be an engineer. I wanted to be an architect. But I went to see my high school guidance counselor, and uh, this is there was a really bad recession going on at the end of the 1970s, and architects weren't making any money. And she's like, don't go into architecture. There's no jobs. Why don't you be an engineer? And I didn't even know what an engineer was. So I ended up going to SUNY Buffalo University. Now it's called the University of Buffalo. Oh, nice. And I went there for engineering, and uh, I lasted uh, three semesters. And uh, I do recall, uh, I knew I was leaving in my third semester, and one of the engineering professors was standing there and he said something to the effect, I don't really, I don't remember the exact number. He says, you know, we started with 1,200 
engineering students and there's only 200 left or something like that. And I'm sitting there in my head saying, I'm leaving also. So they really weeded everybody out. And then I went to see an advisor uh, at the university. They just, you know, give you some random advisor you've never met before. And I sit down with the guy and uh, I said I wanted to be a math major because I was very good in math. He goes, oh, no, no, there's no jobs in that. So uh, he said, why don't you try geology? And I said, what's geology? He says, don't worry about it. I'm going to sign you up for it. Next thing you know, I have a master's degree in geology. So Wow. <laughs> yeah, and that's how I got hired, hired as a nurse science teacher in Chatham. And uh, just on a technicality, I had my physics certification. So they switched me to physics after three years, which is how you had me uh, yeah. as a teacher. So That's awesome, though. Yeah. So, uh, so you also mentioned that you were interested in doing a podcast. And that's why when I saw you, uh, I said, why don't you come on mine? So uh, I should say you're not selling anything. You don't have a podcast, right? No, not yet. <laughs> yeah. So unlike most people who go on podcasts who have something to sell, you're, you're selling nothing, right? Oh. Okay, but uh, what would you be interested in doing your podcast on? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, I majored in environmental stuff, but I have always had a really big, like, fascination in movies and filmmaking and that sort of thing, and filmmaking was my minor at school. So one of the classes I ended up taking was an introduction to podcasting, and taking the class, our midterm, and then our final, too, we had to pitch an idea for an original podcast that was unique and that maybe eventually we'd actually do. And I really wanted to do one about uh, like movie monsters. I wanted to call it like cinematic beasts, explore some of like, you know, like dinosaurs from Jurassic park, the birds from the birds, mm-hmm. you know, um, and just see how like the effects hold up, see how they, what effect they had on audiences and like kind of talk about the lore behind all those. Sure. Now, um, would you be doing just an audio podcast or a video? I think just an audio. I, I kind of played around the with the idea of a video because, you know, I, I do love film and would mm-hmm. love to kind of show what they look like at the same time. But I think like having guests on um, talking about maybe their favorite movies, like maybe some of their favorite like mm-hmm. creatures they've seen in movies and then putting some sound effects in there. I think that'd be fun to play around with. Yeah. Um, the only thing you have to be concerned about is copyrights. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's we a talked a lot issue. about that in yeah. school. <laughs> um, uh, you know, as I said to you, if you ever want to use my equipment, you're more than welcome to. I mean, you probably live, what, about 35, 40 minutes from here? Something, something like that, yeah. yeah. So, um, and, and you and the place where you're working, which is a nursery. Hey, you can do some promotion for your nursery. Where, where are you working? It's true. Yeah, I'm working at Zima's Nursery in Steventown. Come check us out. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's the only Steventown on earth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they do have signs that say that as you're driving. Yeah, in. they really do. <laughs> uh, an interesting little side note to this is uh, I mentioned my cousin Michelle, who lives in Arkansas, who I hadn't seen in 40-whatever years, 40-something years. Um, when I first did meet her, you know, via uh, a video chat, uh, we just started talking and you know, we kind of hit it off. And I was working on my ancestry. That's how I found her. And she started giving me pieces of her family. And I started researching them back. Now, she lives outside of Little Rock, and it turns out a lot of her great, great, whatever, you know, I don't know how many generations back come from Steventown. Really? And uh, you'll you'll agree with me that if you're in Steventown, you're probably lost, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is a nice little town, but it, it really is out of the way, you know? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So j- just a funny little side note that popped in my head. Although I should mention, uh, uh, I hadn't seen you since uh, your sister's graduation, I think. Yeah, right? Which, yeah, I think that's true. Is she a year or two years younger than you? She's a year and a half younger. No, so she would have graduated 
2019. Yeah. Yep. So um, anyway, that's the last time I saw you. And then uh, I noticed on Facebook, someone said, because I'm just friends with you on Facebook, and someone said that you were working at Zima's. And my wife has been bugging me for you know, actually quite a few years ago up there, but he said it's a really nice nursery. And uh, so I said, hey, let's go up there and we'll see if Madison's there. And then then we got in the conversation of podcasts and here you are. So Yeah, so. all worked out. <laughs> okay, but uh, uh, so we're, I guess you should probably move on because people uh, don't want to hear our life stories, I'm sure. Uh, although if anyone's listened to mine long enough, I think they can probably write a whole book, although it wouldn't be too interesting. <laughs> okay, so we're going to do um, what I call footnotes history. These are very, very short little stories that can't really be researched any further just kind of little quirky things. And we're going to read them word for word because there's really, they're almost impossible to rewrite. So, uh, so I'll take the first one. You'll do the next one. Sounds good. Okay. So let's go. Okay. This story appeared in the May 5th, 1926 publication of the Windsor star. And the headline reads falls 50 feet only suffers bruises. Niagara falls, Ontario, May 5th. Falling 50 feet into the Niagara gorge Tuesday, William Lyle, 16 years old of this city, had a narrow escape from death. Lyle was walking along a pathway at the top of the bank when he slipped and plunged over the cliff. He took a sheer drop of more than 50 feet, or 15.24 meters, and then struck some shrubs, which broke his fall and prevented him from rolling the remaining 150 feet, or 45.7 meters, to the river edge. Lyle was brought to the top of the bank by rescuers and taken to a hospital where it is said that he was badly bruised and suffering from shock. No bones are believed to have been broken. So Madison, have you been to Niagara Falls? I have actually, yes. Yeah, that's surprising. A lot of people I speak to have never been there. And uh, I try and tell everybody, you have to get there once in your lifetime. It is. It's beautiful. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. and most people don't know that most of the water doesn't flow over the falls. They just send enough over to uh, make it look beautiful. And the rest is diverted to the hydroelectric plants up there. Anyway, uh, why were you there? Yeah, so we were taking like a family trip to Niagara Falls. And uh, we thought we thought that was the trip. We were like, we're going to Niagara Falls. And we were like, that's so cool. And then we're having lunch like on this little restaurant, look like overlooking the falls. It's like perfect. And then like mom and dad lean over and they're just like, yeah, so mad. Actually, um, this is a surprise birthday trip as well. We're going to see Coldplay live at Buffalo Stadium. Yeah. Was that uh, uh, the outdoor theater or is it indoor? Indoor. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, when I, I mean, I lived in Buffalo. They've, they've ripped it down, but we used to see all the concerts in the Buffalo Memorial Auditorium, but I believe they've replaced it with a newer... Uh, yeah. facility there so I, I i do know that i remember reading somewhere they had ripped it down but uh, i saw a lot of concerts in buffalo um but niagara falls is uh pretty did you go to the american side or the canadian side did you cross over into canada um i think we were on the american side the whole time yeah i don't think we crossed over yeah you um then you didn't see niagara falls. i mean you saw niagara falls but the american side's okay but you just don't get uh, a really good you know like you, the you, picturesque right view. the yeah. picturesque view uh, and uh, it's very touristy on the Canadian side. Uh, I mean, kind of over the top. You have the Wax Museum and you know the uh, and the uh, Ripley's and the Guinness Museums and things like that, and lots and lots of souvenirs. Most people take the boats. They used to be called Made of the Mist. Now they're run by another company, I think. Um, but my favorite thing to do was to go down. They have tunnels under the falls, so you take an elevator down. And you go through these tunnels and you stand there and the water, I mean, you can't touch the water, but it's flowing right and crashing down right in front of you. It's just uh, 
one of the best things to do. Most people don't do that. But anyone who goes to Niagara, I say, you got to go do the tunnel tour. So the next time you're there, you got to go to the Canadian side. Yeah, I'll uh, have to give it a try. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and if anyone out there listening has not been to Niagara Falls, uh, it, it's just one of those things you got to do once. Kind of like going to the Statue of Liberty or the Empire State Building. You do it once. And uh, I mean, I've been there many, many times because, uh, you know, Buffalo is probably about 30 minutes away. Uh, and my friends used to go there because Canadian beer had twice as much alcohol as American beer. And they throw me in the, I didn't drink, so they throw me in the car. You're allowed to bring one case per person duty-free back. So they throw me in the car. I don't drink. They can get one more case across the border without having to pay anything for it. So, <laughs> Pretty slick. Yeah. I mean, of course, the drinking age was 18 back then, but uh, typical uh, college students trying to find a way to get their beer, you know? Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. So uh, you're going to read the next one. Yep. This story appeared on page 16 of the May 2nd, 1934 publication of the Indianapolis News. The headline reads, Skids out window on soap, falls into sand. Gary, Indiana, May 2nd, AP. The next time Mrs. Beulah Hopkins takes a bath, she'll lock the bathroom window. Mrs. Hopkins went into the bathroom, disrobed, and turned the water on in the tub. Suddenly, her husband heard a scream. He dashed into the bathroom, and his wife was gone. He peered out the open window. His wife had fallen three stories and was atop a sand pile on the ground. At the Gary Hospital today, Mrs. Hopkins explained that she stepped on a piece of soap and skidded right out the window. Her only injury was a wrenched back. Yeah, you, you hear about people uh, supposedly slipping on banana peels and soap, and here, here's a real proof of it. Yeah, it's like something out of a cartoon. <laughs> yeah. You know, when I first came across a story, it actually reminded me of one that I recorded back in 2017, and it was a story of three children in 1957, and this is uh, in Corpus Christi, Texas, and they were just bouncing up and down on their mattress with the window open, and you know what happened. Out the window they went, and they all landed not in a sand pile, but on concrete, and the father, uh, I, I don't know if he was asleep or whatever, but he heard screaming, and he went out, and he found his three kids down there on the sidewalk. And if memory, if my memory serves me right, uh, two of the kids had some, you know, injuries, and one of them was fine, but they all recovered. So, uh, and I do have that one on my website. So, if anybody's curious, just go to uselessinformation.org and uh, search out that story, and you can read the whole thing. Yeah, that's kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah, uh, lots of crazy things happen in life. You know? <laughs> yeah, I I remember um, we went on a family trip. I had to be like six or seven. Uh, we used to go to Long Beach Island um, like once a summer with some extended family. And my brother, uh, which uh, you taught as well, my little yes. brother Graham, uh, he was a toddler. And we were all hanging out. We like rented a house and we're all hanging out in the living room like right after dinner or something. So it's like dusk and we're hanging out. And he like leans against the um, glass door that leads out onto uh, nothing. I think there was supposed to be a deck there, but right. the house wasn't completely finished yet. So he leans against it and it just pops open. Right. And he like, the house itself is lofted because it's by the beach. Right, so sure. it was like a five feet, five foot drop into a sand dune, thankfully. But you know, he, he's like laying there. We're looking <laughs> down at him and he's like stunned. <laughs> so Yeah. Uh, I, I should add to that. It has something to do with, with that story, but uh, your brother Graham, Mm -hmm. And uh, you never said anything to me. It was, it was when I got your sister in class. 
And all of a sudden they're all joking around because I tell kids they need to convert from grams or kilograms to Newtons. And, <laughs> and of course your brother is Graham Newton. Yep. And, and I, I'm like, no, that can't be true. And sure enough, I, I had him as a student in my last year of teaching. So, uh, and I should say your brother is really, really smart. He's a really good mathematician. So yeah, I don't know if I told you he wants to go to school for um, being an electrician now. Yeah, of- that doesn't really surprise me because he was really good with his hands. And he's also a very curious person. So not a surprise that he's opting to do that. Anyway, let's move on to the next story. This story originally appeared in the June 1st, 1946 publication of the Lansing State Journal on page four. And its headline is Baby Delivered Between Floors. Chattanooga, Tennessee, June 1st, Associated Press. An expectant mother was being moved to the maternity ward of Erlinger Hospital yesterday when the elevator stuck near the fourth floor landing. A nurse was aboard and made the delivery without the aid of a physician. Meanwhile, the elevator was repaired and continued on its journey. Both mother and daughter are reported, quote, doing nicely. So I guess we can talk about two things after that story. Uh, The first is, where were you born? Uh, St. Peter's in Albany. Okay, Uh, which is not too far from where I'm recording this right now. And I have to say, I was born in Brooklyn, in my mom and his hospital. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. (laughs) And it reminded me of something that happened maybe about five years after I started teaching in Chatham. I was having these really, really bad headaches. And we didn't know at that time it was due to the fact my eyes don't see in the same direction. I have something called strabismus. But they didn't. I wasn't diagnosed with that at the time. So uh, my general physician, my doctor, says, I want you to get a scan of your brain. And he sends me to Albany Med, uh, you know, Albany Medical Center. And I get the scan, and for a week, I don't hear anything. And it was parents' night at school. And uh, as a teacher, I had to be there till like, 9 o'clock at night. I lived about 45 minutes away from the school, so I probably got home around 10. I get in, and this is in the days of the answering machines, you know, and there's like a dozen messages on my machine, on the machine. The first one's from my doctor saying there's an abnormality with your uh, scan, but don't get too concerned about it. We're going to make an appointment uh, for you to see a neurologist. Next message is from a neurolo- the neurology department at Albany Med. There's another one from my doctor. It's just going back and forth, but I wasn't there. So here there's some abnorm- abnormality, and my appointment wasn't just with neurology. It was with the head of neurology at Albany Med. And I'm thinking, holy cow, what, what did they find here? So I pick up the phone the next day, it's a Friday, to call my doctor, and he took the day off. So I had to go the whole weekend uh, to get this emergency appointment at Albany Med. And I go, and the doctor pulls out, it's like this old doctor's bag, you know, leather bags. He opens it up, and I swear, he had every evil trick in there. He's sticking me with pins and hitting, hitting me with hammers and everything else. He's making me hop around on one leg. And at the end, uh, he asked me, was there an abnormality with your birth? And I said, I don't recall my mom ever saying anything. And he said something about, uh, I have a little extra fluid in my brain. There's like extra space in there or something. And he goes, that only happens if you're born prematurely or there's a complication during birth. So of course I went home and asked my mom and she said, neither was true. So I'm just a freak medical case there. You know? Wow. <laughs> yeah. So that's my birth story. Um, the other thing I was going to ask you is, you ever got, have you ever gotten stuck in an elevator? I have not, thankfully. <laughs> yeah, I have many times. Uh, oh, no. I, went, I went to SUNY Buffalo, and the girl I was dating at that time lived in this dorm. I want to say it was called Goodyear. Uh, Goodyear was the name of the dorm. And, of course, kids have a lot to drink, you know, on, on Friday and Saturday nights. And what they would do is break the light bulbs in the elevator. So you'd have to take the elevator up and down in the dark. 
And uh, it's, I mean, some people are fearful of them with the lights on and here you're taking them up and down in the dark. It's like the Tower of Terror. Yeah, and they'd always get stuck. So there you are in the dark and the elevator would just come to a stop. And I guess because so many people used them, they knew very quickly that they had gotten stuck. And this is before uh, cell phones where you could, you know, turn on the light and see what you were doing. So, but we never spent very long in there, but I remember maybe five or six times we got stuck in the elevator, sometimes with the light on, sometimes with it, with it off, but uh, they always, within a very few minutes, got us out of there. I think it was just, it just happened so often. I wonder if they had the elevator repairman just living on premises, on the premises. On speed dial. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that does remind me of a story though. I've never been stuck on an elevator, I I reiterate, but um, we... My family and I, we've had some bad luck with getting stuck on like rides at amusement parks. And like very recently and very noticeable, we went on a family vacation to Universal Studios in Orlando and we had been there once before years and years ago. And I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, The Mummy. I have. Yes. Yeah. So they have a ride based on that and it's sort of like, it's a roller coaster, but it's inside, it's through tunnels and they, you know, they kind of make it look like you're inside these tombs and a pyramid Mm -hmm. So, but there's this one room that you go into on the ride that the ceiling ignites in flames and it's, it sort of tricks you. You think you're like at the end of the ride, but then everything goes badly. The fire starts and the floor is supposed to drop out immediately and you exit the room. Mm -hmm. That didn't happen (laughs) when we were on the ride. So the fire starts and we're just sitting in there. And the fire's still kind of going, then it eventually goes out, and we're like, we're stuck in like this inferno room. <laughs> it's like 70 degrees outside. It feels like 90. We're yeah. sitting in an oven, and now we're all kind of like doing that thing where you kind of nervously like laugh like, oh, yeah, this, is, <laughs> this isn't good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've gotten stuck on rides before, but nothing to that extreme. Yeah. Um, uh, my wife and I have only been to Disney World once, and... Uh, I think uh, at least uh, definitely two, I think maybe three times we're on one of their rides and it just stops in the middle. Yeah. Um, and which really surprised me because it's very expensive to go to Disney world. And I, you, you think everything would be operating exactly right. You know, with, without all these quirks in the system, we went in the summer when it was very hot um, and it wasn't very crowded. So it was kind of surprising, you know? Yeah. But, sort of the same with universal. I mean, the, the one thing I know we have to move on, but mm-hmm. the one thing that kind of scared us a little bit more after all of that was done the next day, we're in the park again and it's like our last day. So we wanted to hit up some of our favorite rides from before. Mm-hmm. We'd like, oh, okay, maybe we'll give the mummy a second try. We go over to it and there's a big wall up around it and it says scheduled renovation happening. <laughs> and we're like, wow, we almost just died <laughs> on the mummy ride. Yeah, probably not, but uh, they just want to give you that impression. So. Yep. Okay, so you're going to do the next one, is that right? Yeah, I think so. Here's an article that was printed on page one of the December 8th, 1948 issue of the Chico Enterprise record. The headline reads, Little Boy Finds Toilet Seat Not Quite His Size. Hollywood Associated Press. Philip Burroughs, a curious 20-month-old boy, tried a junior toilet seat on for size as a collar and finally had to have help from the fire department to get it off. Mrs. Robert B. Burroughs, the boy's mother, said she saw Philip raise the seat to his head and admonished him, no, don't, but it was too late. The seat slipped down around his neck. She tried vainly to get it off, even using Vaseline. Doctors and nurses at Hollywood Receiving Hospital also tried, with no luck. 
The fire department was called, and fireman V.S. Donovan carefully wielded a saw to remove the seat. Quote, It's one of those things, sighed Mrs. Burroughs after the ordeal. So I mentioned in one of the previous podcasts to Mary Jane that I had a number of these stories about boys putting their heads in toilet seats and getting stuck. So I found one of them, and that's why I decided to include it. I don't think I read a previous one. Maybe I did, but uh, this is one of those cases. And boys, you know, I think boys as a whole, as a whole, they get more trouble than girls do when they're uh, little kids. In fact, just this weekend when I was down in Florida, my aunt, who's my dad's sister, she was telling the story how my mom had basically a hotline, you know, a direct line to the poison control center when I was a kid. Oh basically, God. I would eat anything. Uh, she said that I once ate a styrofoam surfboard. Um, I think she mentioned that I drank turpentine. And I re- the only one I remember is that my parents in their house in Brooklyn, New York, um, down in the basement, they had a refrigerator. And of course, when you're a little kid, you, have, you don't know what refrigeration is. I opened up this unplugged refrigerator and in there was a Dannon yogurt. And of course, it was unplugged. So who knows how many months it was like that. I remember eating and thinking it was the best yogurt I ever ate in my life. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So um, anyway, uh, I'll do the last little tidbit for today. All right. Sounds good. This story was printed in the Raleigh News and Observer on April 2nd of 1950 and appeared on page 50. The headline reads, Dog Shoot Owners, Only Texas, United Press. Dogs around here have apparently become shotgun happy. Two owners were shot in one month by their dogs. Jack Bishop, a farmer, was entering his car to go hunting when his collie jumped in and tripped the trigger. Bishop was sprayed with buckshot. John Schlitter was wounded when his dog stuck an inquisitive paw into the trigger guard of a shotgun lying on a chair. So, Madison, I know you hunt, right? Yes, I do. And uh, you learned that from your dad, is that correct? Yep, when I was about 14. Right. And is it mostly deer? Yep, um, for the most part. I've been turkey hunting, but yeah, it's mostly deer. Yeah, and uh, of course you live uh, on a large piece of property. Yeah. And uh, is that where you do most of the hunting? Yeah, yeah, we um, we have a bunch of hiking trails back there and tree stands and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Um, and has anyone ever gotten you in your face about hunting, you know, that you're, you're killing these innocent a- animals or? No, nothing like that. Um, I mean, when I went to Stony Brook, it, you know, it's classically a little bit more, um, you know, more city people. Mm-hmm. So um, it was more of like kind of an educational thing. People were just curious about it mostly, and I'm happy to answer questions about it. Sure. And uh, I guess I should mention that around here, it's fairly common for people to hunt. I mean, I've never done it myself, but I'm, I'm used to uh, going to the supermarket and there's my meat in a yellow tray, you know, yellow foam tray with uh, plastic wrap around it, you know, right. so I'm kind of removed from that. Um, but of course, New York State has very strict laws as to when you can hunt and how much you can hunt. Because uh, my understanding is that, uh, you know, some years the deer population is way too large and they'll suffer major starve-offs. Uh, am I correct on that? If they don't, if they don't kind of wean down the population, absolutely. Um, then you'll have it basically overwhelming, like the carrying capacity of the habitat and the area. Um, you, you'll see more deer get in car accidents. You'll see more um, more of them dying in the winter because there wasn't enough food for them to stock up mm-hmm. before the big snow. So yeah, it's definitely an important part of conservation for sure. Yeah. Uh, and what about butchering? 
Yeah. So we, we don't do it ourselves. Um, but we have, we have a family friend that does it. Um, mm-hmm. and now we, we basically replace like store-bought beef. Now we have venison instead and we can mm-hmm. stock up our freezers with that. Sure. Um, we actually have a butcher shop right around the corner and, uh, I mean, they do an okay business, but the bulk of their business is, is during hunting season. Uh, people bring them the deer and, uh, you know, of course they butcher them for them. So, uh, I, I know it's not for everybody, but, uh, you know, we, we do live in an area that has a lot of woods and, and, uh, you know, and hunting is quite common. Although I will say when I started teaching in Chatham, you know, now it's 32 years ago, kids used to come to school, you know, in their pickup trucks and they'd have uh, gun racks, you know, behind their seat and they'd have their rifles in there. And when hunting season began, there'd be no one in school. I mean, I wish I shouldn't say no one, but I'd say about a third of the kids would just disappear because it was beginning a hunting season. But then towards the end of my career, I didn't see that that much. In fact, I didn't even know hunting season was going on. So the population has definitely changed over the years. Yeah. And I think just um, people kind of keep it on the down low a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And I know there are people that are really, really against hunting. So we're not going to go too much into that, uh, but it is quite common around here. Absolutely. Um, And and as you've said to me, uh, the, the basically it's not a kind of thing you just go around and brag about. It's just one of those things you keep on the down low. So you don't really hurt anybody or get into arguments with people. For sure. And, 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 you know, um, I know your dad's no longer with us, but he taught you to be a responsible hunter. I'm sure. Definitely. Yeah. And if if you want to be a hunter, you want to be an ethical hunter for sure. You want to follow the rules and that's what it's all about. Yeah. Okay. So we'll move on from there. And now it's time to answer the question of the day. All right. <laughs> and I had asked you what what was the name of the company or the place that employs the most number of people? Did you have any idea? I mean, my first thought when you brought up the question was Google, but then mm-hmm. you said it was all in one site. So now I'm I'm kind of at a loss. <laughs> and, and of course, Google and Apple and Microsoft do have, you know, campuses where they employ, you know, tons and tons of people. Right. But none of those are the answer. You ready? Yeah. I think you've been to this place. You want to now give it a guess in Florida? Oh, is it Disney? Yes. Walt oh, Disney my World. Yes. <laughs> Um, and, uh, that's only cause Dis- I, the only reason I asked this is cause Disney's been in the news, uh, for various reasons, uh, recently, but anyway, uh, Walt Disney world in Orlando, Florida is the largest single site employer in the United States. And of course, due to COVID, uh, some of these numbers may not be exactly accurate, but they have more than 77,000, what they call cast members working there. Uh, and their salaries in total, and this is in 2019, so it's probably up from this. But in 2019, the salaries of these people topped three billion dollars. Wow! That's all in one place, so that's kind of cool. That's incredible. Yeah. yeah. Well, Madison, I guess it's time to bring this uh, episode to a close. I just want to thank you uh, for giving up your time uh, on a. I guess we're recording this on a Tuesday night. Uh, it'll go live in a few days, but I want to thank you for uh, uh, joining me. Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. And as I said, if you want to use my equipment uh, when you start your podcast and I'll try and offer whatever expertise I have, I'm not sure, uh, you know, uh, I have much to offer other than I've been doing it for a very long time and uh, whatever I can do to help, I'd be more than happy to. Um, I'll just remind everybody out there that if you want to contact me, uh, just use my email address at steve at uselessinformation.org. Uh, you can go to my website, which is uselessinformation.org, and you can click on the contact button there. And you can also go through Facebook, uh, use Messenger. Um, and I guess we'll just call it uh, an end there. So anyway, I'll be back in a couple of weeks with a full-length story. I have a good one coming up. 
and I'm not even going to tell Madison what it is. So, oh, uh, come on. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> anyway, thanks for being on, and I just want to say goodbye to everyone. Uh, thanks for listening. Bye, everyone. Bye. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts.